Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of Research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's time again for our monthly conversation with Gro, and let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China. And Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Hey, Richard. Last month in November, we've clearly seen much more news flows on potential stimulus policies on the property sector. For example, the Bloomberg media reported in mid-November that the PBOC may consider using policy tools including both PSL and also special loans to finance the so-called three major projects through policy banks with cheaper funding. And for those who don't know, the three major projects basically refer to social housing, the urban village renovation program, as well as some infrastructure construction. Now, PSL stands for Pledged Supplementary Lending, and this was used during 2015 to 2018 as a way to finance the shantytown redevelopment. And if I have to oversimplify, I would just say that's sort of like printing money to finance the investments, basically five policy banks. And I'm sure some of you may recall this shantytown redevelopment in 2015 basically led to two years of great time in the property market as well as the stock market. So an investor will just naturally ask if this Bloomberg news is real and we are indeed using this PSL, are we going to bring back the same golden time to the stock market or maybe the property market as well? So how was the real impact of this policy in your view? Yeah, it's a very powerful tool. Basically, last November, the PBOC used it once already. At that point in time, the PBOC actually extended 800 billion yuan worth of PSL to the commercial banking sector. And this helped rejuvenate the Chinese economic cycle in the first two quarters of this year. So it's very, very powerful. And also in the first two quarters, we did see a substantial improvement in terms of economic activities and also in terms of market sentiment. The market, if you recall, rallied more than 20% in mainland and also more than 50% in Hong Kong. And the Chinese tech listed in Hong Kong is more than double between last November and February. So it's very powerful. This time around, I think the likelihood of a similar move can be hoped for in the sense that the economics still need help. So even this year, maybe 5% is not a stretch, it's within target. But next year, you know, it's a little tricky because next year, if the property sector is not turning around and the investment growth continue to be dragged by property investment growth, then we probably need some powerful policy tool to stimulate the economic growth. In many ways, it's a Chinese-style QE in the sense that the central bank expand its balance sheet, move the central bank liquidity or the base money through the banking system to help the economic growth. We're waiting and see the actual announcement of this policy tool. And besides PSL, the foreign media also reported that there is a construction of the white list of 50 developers. But I think the more interesting part is actually the other thing that reported by Bloomberg. Yes, it's from Bloomberg again that China may allow banks to extend unsecured working capital loans to the property developers. And if this news is real, for sure this is positive for developers, but for banks, we now have to consider the associated bad loan risks. And my question now to you, how is if this is not a, an official target, that the banks are not forced to extend the loans to the developers, do you think the banks will really do this? 
are they going to really lend the money to the developers and why? It was denied by the domestic media. There was a meeting maybe, but there isn't a sort of a so-called whitelist for the bank to force the bank to lend to the developers. And as you can see today in Hong Kong, Evergrande is going through the bankruptcy motion, even though the court ruling is delayed until late January and the market sort of rejoice after the announcement. But you can see Chinese developers are in a lot of trouble as some of them are going through the bankruptcy motions already. To force banks to lend to troubled developers, yes, it helps the developer. It really destroys the bank's balance sheet and also destroys the incentive for the banks to make proper business decisions. So I really doubt that it's true. And also, there has to be a incentive system for the banks to lend. So as it is now, if you're a bank loan officer, you loan out to developers. And if your loan goes sour, then you're responsible for the rest of your life. If you're a loan officer, why would you do that? So the upside is that you help the economy and the bank looks good. But the downside is that you're forever held responsible for a problematic loan personally. So I don't see anyone would do that. It's a very easy, simple calculation. I think people seem to forget back in the four, uh, four trillion yuan stimulus days in 2008, there was a lending quota. The lending quota says that if you're a bank, you're, you're supposed to lend this much to the business sector, no matter what, at a very low interest rate. And the next thing, the companies basically borrow from the bank at a very low rate and then redeposit the money back into the banking system without even reinvesting it. Because back then, the lending rate is actually lower than the deposit rate. So that creates an incentive for the companies to abuse this kind of a lending structure. And then later on, as you can see, after 2009, there was a huge excess capacity in the manufacturing sector and then in 2016, we initiated a supply-side reform because we just had built too much factories back in 2008, 4 trillion yuan stimulus days. So it's a lesson to be had. So I think when people come up with all this outlandish claim saying that the Chinese banks should do this and that, they should keep in mind that there has to be a basic business logic and an economic sense to all these proposals. Otherwise, we end up going back to the old days where we try to stimulate and then all we left is problematic loans and then also excess capacity. Sure, very well said. I think basically the key to stimulating economic growth is we need to focus on the underlying demand. There should be an economic driver for everything rather than just asking whoever to lend to whoever. So we did have some good news in November, but we also had some bad news. The bad news is that Zhongzhi Group, which is one of the largest asset management companies in China, announced that its asset is now only 200 billion RMB, but the debt is between 420 to 460 billion. So basically, it means the company is in negative equity. So my focus right now is what will happen to the investors of these products. Bloomberg basically calculates that the recovery value is only around 13%, which means that the investors will suffer close to total loss. And I guess the part has been is that most of these investments are unleveraged, so the chain link impact basically would be relatively manageable. But on the other side of the equation, will that hurt the financing channels of the corporates going forward? For example, I understand that a fair amount of these trust loans or wealth management products are actually loans extended to the property developers. So will that cause some negative ripple effect? may not be on property developers because they are very bad already, but how about the other sectors that traditionally tapped on these wealth management product lending? 
Yeah, Zhongxi has been a problem for some time now. I think there has been rumors circulating around this company right, since two years ago when the founder of the company passed away. So there are plenty of rumors and guesstimates. And now the hen come back to the roosters, then we see the full scale of the problem. It is really puzzling to see that that is like more than 400 billion yuan outstanding, but then the asset is just so little. So you sort of wonder where the other money go. So let's wait and see what enforcement unit will get to the bottom of it and how best to salvage the value in the assets and then rescue the investors. But no matter what, the problem is that it's a huge company, one of the largest wealth management company, hundreds of billions of yuan worth of investments. The wealth management product in China is about 25 trillion yuan in size. The trust fund industry is about 20 trillion yuan in size. So it is humongous. I would be hard-pressed to believe that this is an isolated incident. So I'm pretty sure that there would be even more incidents, similar incidents such as this, you know, because all the investment products are related and many of them are based on the root assets. The base of the investment product is really a housing projects, construction projects. So those are the projects in the good years give you 70%, sometimes even more. But then in, in years such as this, because they cannot be completed and sold, and therefore, the principal and the interest payment cannot be made back to you. So it is messy. I don't think anyone wants to be in this situation, but we're in right now. And they're like leverage on leverage in the industry as well. So it will take some time to clear. And it is such a complex issue that it's beyond the scope of a few minutes of discussions. Right. I think what you said is fair enough. Let's move on to talk about consumption because industry data basically shows a very mixed picture on the consumption. On the positive side, we've seen smartphone sales apparently coughed and rebounded. To be frank, double 11 is not super good, but seems to at least achieve low single-digit percent growth. On the negative side, the recent results of uh, restaurant stocks or spots where companies are not particularly great. So how do you think you have any on-the-ground information to share regarding China consumption from what you see on the ground? Is it good or bad? Yeah, I think the bigger picture is that consumption is part of the income equation. So you take your income and then you minus the propensity to consume, which tend to be stable, then what's left is your savings. And so incomes times propensity to consume is the consumption. So at this juncture, because the, the economy is still struggling, even though this year we're going to do 5% well within reach, but the actual feeling you know, of people within this economy is somehow still very sour. The foreign arrival, visitors' arrival is still down, way down on the year. Many of the restaurants are closing. Many of the, the Michelin star rated restaurants, the tables can be reserved on the day, on the spot, rather than you have to book well in advance to secure a table, like last year or a couple of years ago. But things has changed. It feels very different on the ground, especially in the sentiment and confidence on the ground has been quite depressed, to be honest. It's tricky because confidence is something that can be revert if you have targeted policy that is solving the right problem. Say, for example, last November, when we're still deeply mired in the pandemic, and then we suddenly sort of uh, you relax the social mobility restrictions, and then even though the contagion was spreading within China, but people were optimistic. And as a result, you know, the stock market actually surged after the removal of the mobility restrictions. So it's tricky. 
But I think if you ask me right now whether on the ground the sentiment is any good, I can tell you responsibly that it is quite depressed. But then at the same time, people were hoping for the right policies to come through, a better operating environment for business to invest, and also a stable environment for business to form expectation for investment in the future. So I think right now, we're still waiting to see elements of these policies. Right. And talking about policy, I guess for investors who are keeping track of the Chinese economy, the remaining key event this year in 2023 must be the Central Economic Working Conference that's usually held in December, because this is the event to decide on the policy direction next year, so it will be particularly useful to understand. Now, how do you think policymakers will extend this narrative of relatively accommodative policies or even step up in a stimulus intensity? And what other events should we watch for next year? No one would be surprised to see a continuously easing environment and also expansionary physical policy. I think those are like high likelihood event that people already priced into their price. And also, even for this year, monetary policy has been really well, but then it hasn't worked on the market. Well, only work on the market for a couple of months and then that's it. So the effect is fleeting. The economic policy failed to reignite the business cycle. So if we keep talking about easing monetary policy or even to expand the physical budget, it seems to me that we are running out of ideas. I think right now people have to realize that for the Chinese economy, it's stability and security over growth. Stability and security is a lot more important than growth. And I think if the economy is growing at 4 to 5%, and for 120 trillion yuan, the economy it is a very substantial growth. But then at the same time, at the financial stability meeting that just finished in Beijing, the meeting actually gave the direction and future development paths for the Chinese financial industry. And I think more probe, more investigations, more house cleaning will be coming to the financial industry. So already I think some of the financial firms, top executives being investigated or sometimes being arrested. So it makes it difficult to focus on your work. So for people who are in the industry, who knows what happened. In many ways, when you want to promote systemic stability, you have to clean the house first. So during this house cleaning process, you actually create some instability along the way. It's a sort of a self-conflicting task uh, in a sense that you want to achieve one thing, but then for the time being, you actually achieve the opposite. Uh, so it remains to be seen. I think for next year, monetary easing and physical deficit can be expected. No one should be surprised. But I think beyond that, we need a bit more creativity, more imagination to fix the economy, to reignite uh, market confidence and expectation, so then people can get back to do the usual and make the best out of it. I think for now, the future path is still uncertain, and as a result, it's very difficult for the market and for businesses to form expectations. Fair enough. I think you mentioned two things that are very well said. Number one, I think it's fair to say that policymakers are trying to achieve a lot of things, and sometimes they're conflicting with each other. So to some extent, the market is a little bit confused about the ultimate objective. And second, I think you made a very good point that we need a little bit more unconventional, creative, innovative policies targeted directly at stimulating or recovering people's confidence. So we're definitely monitoring that and see if there are anything coming out that's interesting. But towards the end of this podcast, I do want to discuss the RMB before we close. 
we actually talked about it already last month, but at that time, I was saying that at just where our view is that the dollar yuan cross should maintain around 7.3 most of next year, perhaps 7.1 towards later next year. How I think you have a similar view saying that the rear of RMB should have hit the cyclical low already. It turns out that the dollar depreciated a lot recently and the RMB is already back to 7.1. So apparently this entire trade has been front loaded to November. And my question to you is how do you think the RMB can still appreciate against the dollar in the near future? I think 7 to 7.1 is a sort of an equilibrium valuation for RMB at this juncture in the sense that the interest rate differential between China and the US is narrowing, which is good for the RMB. But then at the same time, domestic economy is still trying to recover. It's bottoming by trying to recover from the bottom. And so as, I think as a result, you know, RMB being a cyclical asset is a reflection of the underlying economy that is still trying to bottom out. So I think as a result, 7.7.1 is about right for the RMB for now. The recent appreciation speed is sort of stunning. We surged from close to 7.4 to 7.1. So in the middle of two weeks, it really sort of surprised many of the people. But whenever the market price change so dramatically, you can rest assured that some trading position has been destroyed. Carry trade position has been destroyed and people have, were forced to cover their shots. Oh, there may be some margin call going on. So I think for next year, 7.7.1 is a equilibrium valuation level. And I think we're the first to call the bottom of RIA, the real effective exchange rate, when the RMB was at 7.4 sort of level. To me, it is not a surprise at all. The RMB has done well in the past couple of weeks. What's more challenge or the question that needs to be answered, how fast and when the Fed will cut and the effect of that interest rate decision on the Chinese yuan, and also what are the innovative policies that China can come up with to deal with the real estate downturn in this cycle? Sure, Hal. I think we definitely need to look at the fundamentals of both countries to determine the outlook of the cross. Anyway, that's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Thank you very much, Hal, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.